Chapter 14 of The Wrecker. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. The Wrecker by Robert Louis Stevenson. Chapter 14 The Cabin of the Flying Scud. The sun of the morrow had not cleared the morning bank the lake of the lagoon the islets and the wall of breakers now beginning to subside still lay clearly pictured in the flushed obscurity of early day when we stepped again upon the deck of the flying scud nares myself the mate two of the hands and one dozen bright virgin axes in war against that massive structure i think we all drew pleasurable breath so profound in man is the instinct of destruction so engaging is the interest of the chase for we were now about to taste in a supreme degree the double joys of demolishing a toy and playing hide the handkerchief sports from which we had all perhaps desisted since the days of infancy and the toy we were to burst in pieces was a deep-sea ship and the hidden good for which we were to hunt was a prodigious fortune the decks were washed down the main hatch removed and a gun tackle purchase rigged before the boat arrived with breakfast i had grown so suspicious of the wreck that it was a positive relief to me to look down into the hold and see it full or nearly full of undeniable rice packed in the chinese fashion in boluses of matting breakfast over johnson and the hands turned to upon the cargo while Nares and I, having smashed open the skylight and rigged up a windsail on deck, began the work of rummaging the cabins. I must not be expected to describe our first day's work, or, for that matter, any of the rest, in order and detail as it occurred. Such particularity might have been possible for several officers and a draft of men from a ship of war, accompanied by an experienced secretary with a knowledge of shorthand. For two plain human beings, unaccustomed to the use of the broad axe, and consumed with an impatient greed of the result, the whole business melts, in the retrospect, into a nightmare of exertion, heat, hurry, and bewilderment, sweat pouring from the face like rain, the scurry of rats, the choking exhalations of the bilge, and the throbs and splinterings of the toiling axes. I shall content myself with giving the cream of our discoveries in a logical rather than a temporal order. Though the two indeed practically coincided, and we had finished our exploration of the cabin before we could be certain of the nature of the cargo, Nares and I began operations by tossing up pell-mell through the companion and piling in a squalid heap about the wheel, all clothes, personal effects, crockery, the carpet, stale victuals, tins of meat, and, in a word, all movables from the main cabin. Thence we transferred our attention to the captain's quarters on the starboard side. Using the blankets for a basket, we sent up the books, instruments, and clothes to swell our growing midden on the deck, and then Nares, going on hands and knees, began to forage underneath the bed. Box after box of manila cigars rewarded his search. I took occasion to smash some of these boxes open, and even to guillotine the bundles of cigars, but quite in vain. No secret cache of opium encouraged me to continue. "'I guess I've got hold of the dicky now,' exclaimed Nares, 
and turning round from my perquisitions i found he had drawn forth a heavy iron box secured to the bulkhead by chain and padlock on this he was now gazing not with the triumph that instantly inflamed my own bosom but with a somewhat foolish appearance of surprise by george we have it now i cried and would have shaken hands with my companion but he did not see or would not accept the salutation let's see what's in it first he remarked dryly and he adjusted the box upon its side and with some blows of an axe burst the lock open i threw myself beside him as he replaced the box on its bottom and removed the lid i cannot tell what i expected a million's worth of diamonds might perhaps have pleased me my cheeks burned my heart throbbed to bursting and lo there was disclosed but a trayful of papers neatly taped and a check-book of the customary pattern i made a snatch at the tray to see what was beneath but the captain's hand fell on mine heavy and hard now boss he cried not unkindly is this to be run shipshape or is it a dutch grab-racket and he proceeded to untie and run over the contents of the papers with a serious face and what seemed an ostentation of delay me and my impatience it would appear he had forgotten for when he was quite done he sat a while thinking whistled a bar or two refolded the papers tied them up again and then and not before deliberately raised the tray i saw a cigar box tied with a piece of fishing line and four fat canvas bags nares whipped out his knife cut the line and opened the box it was about half full of sovereigns and the bags i whispered the captain ripped them open one by one and a flood of mixed silver coin burst forth and rattled in the rusty bottom of the box without a word he set to work to count the gold what is this i asked it's the ship's money he returned doggedly continuing his work the ship's money i repeated that's the money trent tramped and traded with and there's his check-book to draw upon his owners and he has left it i guess he has said nares austerely jotting down a note of the gold and i was abashed into silence till his task should be completed it came i think to three hundred and seventy-eight pounds sterling some nineteen pounds of it in silver all of which we turned again into the chest and what do you think of that i asked mr dodd he replied you see something of the rumness of this job but not the whole the specie bothers you but what gets me is the papers are you aware that the master of a ship has charge of all the cash in hand pays the men advances receives freight and passage money and runs up bills in every port all this he does as the owner's confidential agent and his integrity is proved by his receipted bills i tell you the captain of a ship is more likely to forget his pants than these bills which guarantee his character i've known men drown to save them bad men too but this is the shipmaster's honour and here this captain trent not hurried not threatened with anything but a free passage in a british man-of-war has left them all behind i don't want to express myself too strongly because the facts appear against me but the thing is impossible dinner came to us not long after and we ate it on the deck in a grim silence each privately racking his brain for some solution of the mysteries i was indeed so swallowed up in these considerations that the wreck the lagoon the islets and the strident sea-fowl the strong sun then beating on my head 
and even the gloomy countenance of the captain at my elbow all vanished from the field of consciousness my mind was a blackboard on which i scrawled and blotted out hypotheses comparing each with the pictorial records in my memory ciphering with pictures in the course of this tense mental exercise i recalled and studied the faces of one memorial masterpiece the scene of the saloon and here i found myself on a sudden looking in the eyes of the kanaka there's one thing i can put beyond doubt at all events i cried relinquishing my dinner and getting briskly afoot there was that kanaka i saw in the bar with captain trent the fellow the newspapers and the ship's articles made out to be a chinaman i mean to rout his quarters out and settle that all right said nares i'll lazy off a bit longer mr dodd i feel pretty rocky and mean we had thoroughly cleared out the three after compartments of the ship all the stuff from the main cabin and the mates and captain's quarters lay piled about the wheel but in the forward stateroom with the two bunks where nares had said the mate and cook most likely berthed we had as yet done nothing thither i went it was very bare a few photographs were tacked on the bulkhead one of them indecent a single chest stood open and like all we had yet found it had been partly rifled an armful of two shilling novels proved to me beyond a doubt it was a european's no chinaman would have possessed any and the most literate kanaka conceivable in a ship's galley was not likely to have gone beyond one it was plain then that the cook had not berthed aft and i must look elsewhere the men had stamped down the mess and driven the birds from the galley so that i could now enter without contest one door had been already blocked with rice the place was in part darkness full of a foul stale smell and a cloud of nasty flies it had been left besides in some disorder or else the birds during their time of tenancy had knocked the things about and the floor like the deck before we washed it was spread with pasty filth against the wall in the far corner i found a handsome chest of camphor wood bound with brass such as chinamen and sailors love and indeed all of mankind that plies in the pacific from its outside view i could thus make no deduction and strange to say the interior was concealed all the other chests as i have said already we had found gaping open with their contents scattered abroad the same remark we found to apply afterwards in the quarters of the seamen only this camphor wood chest a singular exception was both closed and locked i took an axe to it readily forced the paltry chinese fastening and like a custom-house officer plunged my hands among the contents for some while i groped among linen and cotton then my teeth were set on edge with silk of which i drew forth several strips covered with mysterious characters and these settled the business for i recognized them as a kind of bed-hanging popular with the commoner class of the chinese nor were further evidences wanting such as night-clothes of an extraordinary design a three-string chinese fiddle a silk handkerchief full of roots and herbs and a neat apparatus for smoking opium with a liberal provision of the drug plainly then the cook had been a chinaman and if so who was joseph omelu or had joseph stolen the chest before he proceeded to ship under a false name and domicile it was possible as anything was possible in such a welter but regarded as a solution it only led and left to be deeper in the bog for why should this chest have been deserted and neglected 
when the others were rummaged or removed and where had joseph come by that second chest in which according to the clerk at the what cheer he had started for honolulu and how have you fared inquired the captain whom i found luxuriously reclining in our mound of litter and the accent on the pronoun the heightened colour of the speaker's face and the contained excitement in his tones advertised me at once that i had not been alone to make discoveries i have found a chinaman's chest in the galley said i and john if there was any john was not so much as at the pains to take his opium nair seemed to take it mighty quietly that's so said he now cast your eyes on that and own you're beaten and with a formidable clap of his open hand he flattened out before me on the deck a pair of newspapers i gazed upon them dully being in no mood for fresh discoveries look at them mr dodd cried the captain sharply can't you look at them and he ran a dirty thumb along the title sydney morning herald november twenty sixth can't you make that out he cried with rising energy and don't you know sir that not thirteen days after this paper appeared in new south pole this ship we're standing in heaved her blessed anchors out of china how did the sydney morning herald get to hong kong in thirteen days trent made no land he spoke no ship till he got here then he either got it here or in hong kong i give you your choice my son he cried and fell back among the clothes like a man weary of life where did you find them i asked in that black bag guess so he said you needn't fool with it there's nothing else but a lead pencil and a kind of worked-out knife i looked in the bag however and was well rewarded every man to his trade captain said i you're a sailor and you've given me plenty of points but i am an artist and allow me to inform you this is quite as strange as all the rest the knife is a palette knife the pencil is a windsor and newton and a b b b at that a palette knife and a b b b on a tramp brig it's against the laws of nature it would sicken a dog wouldn't it said nares yes i continued it's been used by an artist too see how it's sharpened not for writing no man could write with that an artist and straight from sydney how can he come in oh that's natural enough sneered nares they cabled him to come up and illustrate this dime novel we fell a while silent captain i said at last there is something deuced underhand about this brig you tell me you've been to sea a good part of your life you must have seen shady things done on ships and heard of more well what is this is it insurance is it piracy what is it about what can it be for mr dodd returned nares you're right about me having been to see the bigger part of my life and you're right again when you think i know a good many ways in which a dishonest captain mayn't be on the square nor do exactly the right thing by his owners and altogether be just a little too smart by ninety-nine and three-quarters there's a good many ways but not so many as you'd think and not one that has any mortal thing to do with trent trent and his whole racket has got to do with nothing that's the bedrock fact there's no sense to it and no use in it and no story to it it's a beastly dream and don't you run away with that notion that landsmen take about ships a society actress don't go around more publicly than what a ship does nor is more interviewed 
nor more humbugged nor more run after by all sorts of little fussinesses in brass buttons and more than an actress a ship has a deal to lose she's capital and the actress only character if she's that the ports of the world are thick with people ready to kick a captain into the penitentiary if he's not as bright as a dollar and as honest as the morning star and what with lloyd keeping watch and watch in every corner of the three oceans and the insurance leeches and the consuls and the customs bugs and the medicos you can only get the idea by thinking of a landsman watched by a hundred and fifty detectives or a stranger in a village down east well but at sea i said you make me tired retorted the captain what's the use at sea everything's got to come to bearings at some port hasn't it you can't stop at sea forever can you no the flying scud is rubbish if it meant anything it would have to mean something so almighty intricate that james g blaine hasn't got the brains to engineer it and i vote for more axing pioneering and opening up the resources of this phenomenal brig and less general fuss he added arising the dime museum symptoms will drop in of themselves i guess to keep us cheery but it appeared we were at the end of discoveries for the day and we left the brig about sundown without being further puzzled or further enlightened the best of the cabin spoils books instruments papers silks and curiosities we carried along with us in a blanket however to divert the evening hours and when supper was over and the table cleared and johnson sat down to a dreary game of cribbage between his right hand and his left the captain and i turned out our blanket on the floor and sat side by side to examine and appraise the spoils the books were the first to engage our notice these were rather numerous as nares contemptuously put it for a lime juicer scorn of the british mercantile marine glows in the breast of every yankee merchant captain as the scorn is not reciprocated i can only suppose it justified in fact and certainly the old country mariner appears of a less studious disposition the more credit to the officers of the flying scud who had quite a library both literary and professional there were findlay's five directories of the world all broken-backed as is usual with findlay and all marked and scribbled over with corrections and additions several books of navigation a signal code and an admiralty book of a sort of orange hue called islands of the eastern pacific ocean volume three which appeared from its imprint to be the latest authority and showed marks of frequent consultation in the passages about the french frigate shoals the harman cure pearl and hermes reefs lisiansky island ocean island and the place where we then lay brooks or midway a volume of macaulay's essays and a shilling shakespeare led the van of the belles lettres the rest were novels several miss braddon's of course aurora floyd which has penetrated to every isle of the pacific a good many cheap detective books rob roy arbacks off der hohe in the german and a prize temperance story pillaged judge by the stamp from an anglo-indian circulating library the admiralty man gives a fine picture of our island remarked nares who had turned up midway island he draws the dreariness rather mild but you can make out he knows the place captain i cried you've struck another point in this mad business see here i went on eagerly drawing from my pocket a crumpled fragment of the daily occidental which i had inherited from jim 
misled by hoyt's pacific directory where's hoyt let's look into that said nares i got that book on purpose for this cruise therewith he fetched it from the shelf in his berth turned to midway island and read the account aloud it stated with precision that the pacific mail company were about to form a depot there in preference to honolulu and that they had already a station on the island i wonder who gives these directory men their information nares reflected nobody can blame trent after that i never got in company with square lying it reminds a man of a presidential campaign all very well said i that's your hoyt and a fine tall copy but what i want to know is where is trent's hoyt took it with him chuckled nares he had left everything else bills and money and all the rest he was bound to take something or it would have aroused attention on the tempest happy thought says he let's take hoyt and has it not occurred to you i went on that all the hoyts in creation couldn't have misled trent since he had in his hand that red admiralty book an official publication later in date and particularly full on midway island that's a fact cried nares and i bet the first hoyt he ever saw was out of the mercantile library of san francisco looks as if he had brought her here on purpose don't it but then that's inconsistent with the steam crusher of the sail that's the trouble with this brig racket anyone can make half a dozen theories for sixty or seventy per cent of it but when they're made there's always a fathom or two of slack hanging out the other end i believe our attention fell next on the papers of which we had altogether a considerable bulk i had hoped to find among these matter for a full-length character of captain trent but here i was doomed on the whole to disappointment we could make out he was an orderly man for all his bills were docketed and preserved that he was convivial and inclined to be frugal even in conviviality several documents proclaimed such letters as we found were with one exception arid notes from tradesmen the exception signed hannah trent was a somewhat fervid appeal for a loan you know what misfortunes i have had to bear wrote hannah and how much i am disappointed in george the landlady appeared a true friend when i first came here and i thought her a perfect lady but she has come out since then in her true colors and if you will not be softened by this last appeal i can't think what is to become of your affectionate and then the signature this document was without place or date and a voice told me that it had gone likewise without answer on the whole there were few letters anywhere in the ship but we found one before we were finished in a seaman's chest of which i must transcribe some sentences it was dated from some place on the clyde my dearest son it ran this is to tell you your dearest father passed away jan twelfth in the peace of the lord he had your photo and dear david's laid upon his bed made me sit by him let's be all together he said and gave you all his blessing oh my dear laddie why were ne you or davy here he would have had a happier passage he spoke of both of ye all night most beautiful and how ye used to stravage on saturday afternoons and of old kelvin's side sooth the tune to me he said though it was the sabbath and i had to sooth him kelvin grove and he looked at his fiddle the dear man i cannot bear the sight of it he'll never play at mare oh my lamb come home to me i'm all by my lane now the rest was in a religious vein and quite conventional 
I have never seen any one more put out than Nares when I handed him this letter. He had read it but a few words before he cast it down. It was perhaps a minute ere he picked it up again, and the performance was repeated the third time before he reached the end. "'It's touching, isn't it?' I said I. For all answer, Nares exploded in a brutal oath, and it was some half an hour later that he vouchsafed an explanation. "'I'll tell you what broke me up about that letter,' said he. "'My old man played the fiddle, played it all out of tune. One of the things he played was martyrdom. I remember. It was all martyrdom to me. He was a pig of a father, and I was a pig of a son. But it sort of came over me. I would like to hear that fiddle squeak again. "'Natural,' he added. "'I guess we're all beasts.' "'All sons are, I guess,' said I. "'I have the same trouble on my conscience. "'We can shake hands on that, "'which, oddly enough, perhaps, we did.' "'Amongst the papers we found a considerable sprinkling of photographs, "'for the most part either of very debonair-looking young ladies "'or old women of the lodging-house persuasion. "'But one among them was the means of our crowning discovery. "'They're not pretty, are they, Mr. Dodds?' said Nares, as he passed it over. Who, I asked, mechanically taking the card, it was a quarter plate, in hand, and smothering a yawn, for the hour was late, the day had been laborious, and I was wearying for bed. Trent and company, said he, that's a historic picture of the gang. I held it to the light, my curiosity at a low ebb. I had seen Captain Trent once, and had no delight in viewing him again. It was a photograph of the deck of the brig, taken from forward, all in apple-pie order, the hands gathered in the waist, the officers on the poop. At the foot of the card was written, Brig Flying Scud, Rangoon, and a date, and above or below each individual figure the name had been carefully noted. As I continued to gaze, a shock went through me. The dimness of sleep and fatigue lifted from my eyes, as fog lifts in the channel, and I beheld with startled clearness the photographic presentation of a crowd of strangers. J. Trent, master, at the top of the card, directed me to a smallish, weazened man with bushy eyebrows and a full white beard, dressed in a frock coat and white trousers, a flower stuck in his buttonhole, his bearded chin set forward, his mouth clenched with habitual determination. There was not much of the sailor in his looks, but plenty of the martinet a dry, precise man who might pass for a preacher in some rigid sect, and whatever he was, not the Captain Trent of San Francisco. The men, too, were all new to me, the cook and unmistakable Chinaman, in his characteristic dress, standing apart on the poop steps. But perhaps I turned on the whole with the greatest curiosity to the figure labeled E. Godadal, first off. He whom I had never seen, he might be the identical, he might be the clue and spring of all this mystery, and I scanned his features with the eye of a detective. He was of great stature, seemingly blond as a viking, his hair clustering round his head in frowsy curls, and two enormous whiskers, like the tusks of some strange animal, jutting from his cheeks. With these virile appendages, and the defiant attitude in which he stood, the expression of his face only imperfectly harmonized. It was wild, heroic, and womanish-looking, and I felt I was prepared to hear he was a sentimentalist and to see him weep. For some while I digested my discovery in private, reflecting how best, and how with most of drama, I might share it with the captain. Then my sketchbook came in my head, and I fished it out from where it lay, 
with other miscellaneous possessions at the foot of my bunk and turned to my sketch of captain trent and the survivors of the british brig flying scud in the san francisco barroom nair said i i've told you how i first saw captain trent in that saloon in frisco how he came with his men one of them a kanaka with a canary bird in a cage and how i saw him afterwards at the auction frightened to death and as much surprised at how the figures skipped up as anybody there well said i there's the man i saw and i laid the sketch before him there's trent of frisco and there are his three hands find one of them in the photograph and i'll be obliged nares compared the two in silence well he said at last i call this rather a relief seems to clear the horizon we might have guessed at something of the kind from the double ration of chest that figured does it explain anything i asked it would explain everything nares replied but for the steam crusher it'll all tally as neat as a patent puzzle if you leave out the way these people bid the wreck up and there we come to a stone wall but whatever it is mr dodd it's on the crook and looks like piracy i added looks like blind hooky cried the captain no don't you deceive yourself neither your head nor mine is big enough to put a name on this business end of chapter fourteen recording by dion gines salt lake city utah